Welcome to the Gen X Playback Show, your favorite show about the 70s, 80s, and 90s. We are the Brothers High. I am Scott. And I'm Sean. And you are listening to Kenny Loggins. Kenny Loggins. Back in the day in 1980. And and I, I tell you why we're going with this song is, as I was looking at the, the charts... Michael McDonald, Sean? <laughs> yes. Well, you know, Kenny Loggins and Mike McDonald were making some real fine songs back then. Yeah. But this was on the charts... Uh, the week of this big game, this was number 16, I believe, on the charts. Okay. And I thought, yeah, it's this is it. It's it's this is the big game. This is it. This is what we're going to talk about today. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. And we talked about in part one, kind of leading up to the medal round, which is where you're going to pick up. But at this point, the United States is like like we said before, is at a fever pitch. Oh yeah. I, I you know it's like. This is stuff you're talking about at school. This is sure. stuff you're talking about with your parents. Yeah. I remember having conversations at the dinner table like, when's the next game? Or are we going to sit down and watch it? Like, we got we to gotta watch the next game. It was, I couldn't believe it because we, at that point, we really never talked sports with our parents. Um, you know, occasionally they would watch baseball or something sure. with us, but uh, certainly not hockey. And, and certainly not discussing the game. Yeah. I mean, you might talk about what the score was and, and you know, if... You know, Mike Schmidt hit a home run or not, but you weren't necessarily going to break down the score. It's like, hey, did you see Jim Craig saves? And well, it, they did because they watched it with us. It, it, they did, and you know that was the thing with what was happening at the time with the Olympics, especially back then, is it was a family thing. I think this was the first time that I ever remember discussing any kind of sports with other kids at school. Okay. Now, granted, I, like you said, I was I'm eight. I'm right, eight years old, so right. I'm in the third grade. Sure, and I remember having, talk. You know, we're sitting there at lunchtime, and I'm I'm talking to my buddies like Doug Whitmer. You know, it's like, and we're talking about this hockey team, mm-hmm. and it's like, oh, this is so exciting, this is so great, and I didn't know the rules. I didn't know the rules for hockey yet. I, I'm still learning that, but I think a lot of what I ended up coming to love in the '80s, which was the Flyers stemmed from this 1980 men's hockey team. And I wanted to bring that up um, because I wonder how many other American kids had the same reaction because for me it was the same. I, I, I was aware of hockey. I didn't really watch it. So the Flyers had their run, you know, like in the mid-70s. I didn't watch any of that. I, I was not aware of that team when it happened. I became the lore of the Broad Street Bullies later on. We used to go every year for New Year's Eve to the Hershey Bears. Mm-hmm. That which was is it. a local uh, minor league hockey team. Yeah, they're in the they're in the American Hockey League, which is a step down from the NHL, and they were always considered like one of the best, if not the best, teams in the American Hockey League. They're the one of the oldest franchises in American sports. They are the oldest hockey team in uh, the United States, but you know, I didn't know the rules. Other than, you know, just watch and make sure you don't get your face hit with a hockey puck that was and flying you like, around. You like the fights. And there was always a fight in Hershey. Yeah. Uh, you know, a lot of blood spilled. We understood when somebody smashed somebody into the boards. Right. And scored a goal. So that's pretty much what it is. Fights, checking guys into the boards, and scoring goals. 
But for us, this is a different kind of hockey. Like like I said, uh, a lot of times the NHL in you know what we used to see in person in Hershey, you didn't see a lot of blowouts. I mean, you're talking maybe two to nothing, maybe three to one, four you know four to two. But when the United States beat up on Czechoslovakia, it's like they scored seven goals. It's yeah. like holy cow! Like you don't see that much. And this is kind of the dawn of a new era of of hockey. It's kind of right about the time you're going to start seeing Wayne Gretzky. Yes, Wayne Gretzky was a player, but I think he at was. the time he was only 17 or 18. Correct. And so the style that eventually becomes the NHL, which is even more now today than what right. it's ever been, where it's it's wide open, coming out of the 70s, it, it was not that way. It, it was it was a kind of whole guys, you know, you're... you're, you're it, it's to me it's like the movie slapstick right and that's that was generally considered i guess you call it north american hockey yeah now the europeans Physical. played a much different style but this what made the soviet team so great was the fact that while they were as poetic on the ice as other european skaters they had the toughness like yes they were not only were they unbelievable skate because the when we were growing up it was European hockey players. They were the skaters. Mm-hmm. The North American guys. They were the they were the bangers. Sure, and the Soviets could do both. Right, which is what made them exceptional. Right. All right. Yeah. So the um, as Scott said, we have this this game. America's talking. You know, it's it's now going to we're going into. It's only two days later though. It's February twenty second, nineteen eighty. It's a Friday night the biggest sporting event in the country and guess what it's not broadcast live yeah amazing the original time slot was 5 p.m it was now nobody anticipated this matchup nobody i put this way nobody anticipated the americans being at this point so they didn't anticipate the matchup they certainly thought the soviets were going to be there the soviets all along had planned on this so the story is when the americans make the round they want to bump them up to the primetime game. ABC wants to make them the eight o'clock. Exactly game. right, but the Soviets refused. That you know they were staying on their schedule, and you know they who are these Americans? We're, we're not altering anything for them. That you know, so as a result, it's not going to be broadcast live. So the the Soviet the official response from the Soviet Union was that the five o'clock starting time would mean that it would air at one a.m in in the soviet union whereas if it wasn't eight o'clock then it would be at 4 a.m and they felt that they more people would stay up at one oh please to watch versus i mean how many people in the soviet union had television exactly right come on yeah yeah Yeah. right um but yeah so they they that was the official response in the in the official statement was why they said no 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 it's got to stay at 5 p.m i i think it's merely merely because they could but what is, you know that doesn't that tell you something about the era in which we grew up? Mm-hmm. Uh, even though it was at five p.m. and ABC chose not to air it, and instead they went went right. Now, granted, we don't know what contractual things and what. Well, they yeah, the affiliates. local news. The yeah. local news was the big moneymaker. <laughs> but could you could you imagine that happening today? Oh uh, no. Famously, in the in the late 60s, I think it was 1967, 66, 67, the famous Heidi game yes. with the Jets against the Raiders, yeah. where 
All right, Heidi. The movie Heidi is airing at seven p.m. on and, the dot. And, yeah, and they shut the game off at the most critical point, and that was to never happen again. But uh, just like this would never happen again in in sports. Well, and and that same year was it was it a few months later, or was it the following year where it, the Sixers Laker game was was taped delayed as well? That was taped delayed. Yeah. Was it was it this year though? That was the finals. Yeah, yeah that was the Magic Johnson game. Right. So I mean that that's kind of what was being done back then. You know, it's and do you? I'm trying. I was trying to remember looking back on this. Did you know the outcome before we watched it at eight o'clock? No, I don't think I did either because no. we didn't have the internet. We didn't have any access. I don't. ABC was not putting updates out there. Yes, and and they intentionally. You know, and looking back on it now, and and they intentionally uh, kept us in the dark. Inf- yeah, withheld information. So. While it had already taken place to us, it was live. Correct. Because we knew nothing about it going in. Right. We did not know the outcome. Nobody knew the outcome. You know, you didn't have social media. You didn't You didn't have ESPN. Uh, it, it just, it wouldn't. Actually, uh, you know, I read that to this day, there's still people that didn't, you know, didn't know that it was tape delayed. Right. Um but it was. It was three hours. The, the the game was over before it even aired. And so, did you? You know, we talked about Eric Hyden mm-hmm. earlier in the in our last previous episode, where you know he's kind of the big star of the Olympics. Did you know he was there inside no, the arena? I did not. Ah, so I, in my research, I found out that you know Hyden was supposed to skate, and he did skate for the gold medal the next day, mm-hmm. and he wanted to be a part of this, so he couldn't get a ticket. The biggest name at the Olympics in his own country could not get a ticket into the game. Well, didn't now the arena up there in Lake Placid, it's a small place, mm-hmm. comparatively speaking. I mean, compared to today's today's arenas can probably easily seat 20,000, 17 to 20,000 fans. I believe the arena in Lake Placid at the time was eight, maybe six to 8,000. So it was less than half the size of a of a normal arena where you would see a hockey ma- a hockey game today. Right. So what they did was he got into the game and he literally is standing right behind Al Michaels. Okay. He there's like this little platform. Yeah. He did not have a seat and he stood behind um Ken Dryden and Al Michaels for the game. Okay. And and they it, said he couldn't really see that well but he just wanted to be part of the atmosphere. Sure. And the atmosphere was electric and uh, Al and Ken were wearing matching sweaters. I remember that. Yeah, they were. That, uh, but Al Michaels, the the only reason that he was selected to be, I guess, the United States play-by-play hockey announcer was he was the only member of the ABC broadcasting team that had even done any hockey before. Right. So he was kind of the default choice. They didn't go out of their way to select Al Michaels to do hockey. It just happened to work out that way. Right. So, but but still, I mean, the fact is that people wanted to be there mm-hmm. and they wanted to be a part of this. So, you know, the, the game starts out and it's not necessarily going the way for the U.S. team. I mean, the, the, the Soviets are kind of coming out and they're, I'm not saying they're, they're dominating, but they are, I mean, they're the better team. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're, 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 they're by far out shooting uh, the Americans and, do you, I, I'm sure you do. Do you remember how big a deal they made out of Jim Craig 
during the whole tournament. Yes, he was. He was really the face in a lot he of ways. He was, you know, of the of all the players, he was the one that got the most camera time, and they made a big big deal about him. I think, as a little kid, as an eight year old watching, what stands out to me is the shamrock that was on his mask. Yeah, right. Uh, you know, that's just it. Just kind of stood out to me, and the fact that when you watch, when you watch the way that he played goalie. It was much, much different. He was much less conventional than, say, a Pelly Lindbergh. You know, you watched, a, he had a tendency when he would stop a puck, he would throw his entire body at it. So he, there were many, many times where you see the modern goaltender where they're sort of in that butterfly, they can do the splits, but they're almost always in an upright position, whereas Jim Craig was on his back a lot. He was. He just seemed to be diving all over the place. But, but he was which incredible. Which was exciting. He was, yes. I mean, there was a lot of action. He's flopping around a bit, always knocking it away. It's just he was masterful. So, you know, the, the Soviets come out, as always, the Americans falling behind. The you know, Soviets score first. Well, I think they kind of had that little bit of that starry-eyed look in, yeah. the, in the very beginning, like, hey, these guys whooped us the last time. And so they, they kind of fell into a little bit of that. In the uh, in the first period. Well, and and now Michael said that recently that he always thought that when he well, well when he and Dryden discussed it ahead of time he said as long as they don't fall down by more than a goal he thinks they'll be fine if they you know as long as they don't ever get beyond more than two and they never did so whenever the Soviets would score they'd always answer right and so you know the Soviets go up they score first Americans come back they score again then the it's it, you know. Two to one, Soviets, and then time's ticking down in the, yeah. the first period. Not bad. Not not a bad period for them. You know, the Soviets are showing their skill. Um, but then they, you know, they catch a break. The United, the United States catches a big break. They catch a break, yes. And, and for those of you, you know, who don't remember it, you know, the Soviets kind of quit. They did. Yeah, they eased With up. With a couple seconds left, they're kind of like, okay, the period's about to end. But the U.S., these feisty young U.S. guys, why we love them so much, they were whistle to whistle. And you know this, Scott. There's some guys you play with, they, they'd look up at the clock and they just kind of check out with like 5, 10 seconds yeah. left. And there's other guys, you could be losing by 15 goals, and they're playing till the second that whistle blows. That's right. And that's what Mark Johnson did. That's right. And, and they, when I say they catch, a, they catch a break, you know, the, the the puck gets sent out of the zone, and you're right. They the Soviet defense kind of relaxes a little bit. Yeah, not expecting Mark Johnson to come flying through, grab the puck off the boards, and then beat the goaltender for a goal that, when they look up at the clock, it's saying zero. So there's going to be some controversy as to whether or not the shot got into the net before it actually time expired. And I I, I forget the name of the, the guy's first name, but uh, but Tretriak, uh, the the goaltender, mm-hmm. is is widely regarded at the time as the best goaltender in the world. Mm-hmm. And some I've heard some arguments that he they will say he's the best goaltender ever. The 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 most dominant player in the ice gives up this kind of cheap goal. Right. He he his defense relaxes and he relaxes a little bit, and just like that, it's tied up. And what a lot of historians will say, the game gets won because coming out of the locker room, Tetriak gets benched. He does for some unexplained reason. Like, uh, you know, the head coach for the Soviets. He's going to punish him. He's furious. He's furious at him, yeah. But it just kind of shows the, the, I wouldn't say the arrogance, but I guess you could use the word arrogance. 
that he felt like, well, I'm going to teach him a lesson. I'm going to stick the other guy in, and we're still going to win. He's just as good, right? I mean, yeah. oh, he's not as good, but come on. Our, our coach did that to us. I mean, he did that stuff all the time. You know, he would, he would like say, oh, if you're not going to hustle, I'm going to put this guy in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you constantly had somebody nipping at your heels. Always, always. And, you know, the let's face it, the Soviet regime was about fear to their opponents, but also fear to their own players. Right. And I thought that was where it was interesting to see or to, to watch the Soviet perspective after the first period. They they said that in the locker room, their forwards got chewed out like they never got reamed out before in their lives. And he basically blamed those, the forwards for, for not coming back and staying with Mark Johnson. And Mark Johnson basically had a kind of free run all the way into the goal. Well, you know, that, that is part of it. I mean, that's when you play a team sport, uh, you know, oftentimes the um, if you're on offense, you, people will blame you if you don't score goals. Well, if your defense doesn't get the, the ball or the puck to you, you're, you're, you're going to have difficulty. And the same thing happens on defense. If your forwards just don't do their job defensively, it puts a lot of pressure on the defenseman. Sure. Yeah, and not only... You know, you said that Al Michaels was talking to Dryden. He said, oh, you know, if down a goal after the first period, they probably have a chance. Well, not only did you do better than that, but you get this unbelievably exciting goal at the end of at the end of the period. So not only did you accomplish your, your goal of, of staying within range of the Soviets, now you're even up and you just have this unbelievable electric rush going through your system and through your team and through the arena – yeah, as you're going to the locker room, and they were just, they were just unbelievable. One of the things I remember about that hockey game, watching on TV, was them just everybody just jumping around, and the guys are. It's almost like you, like the game should have ended right then and there because of the way the players were jump. I just remember the players jumping all over the place. Sure, it was like bedlam. Well, and we we kind of glossed over it. Well, we didn't gloss over because we didn't mention it, but um, in the movie. Uh, miracle they talk about her brooks's famous speech before the game mm-hmm. and you made an interesting point to me when you said that when kurt russell is giving this speech that he's actually using the note cards her brooks's actual note cards that he used that night her brooks gave him the note cards that he saved after he made the speech to the team for the soviets and it is one of the greatest uh pep talk pregame speeches I think I've ever heard in my life makes you want to like jump off your chair sure. and, and go out there and play hockey at 50 years old. But I'm saying it, it's, it's one of the best speeches I've ever heard. And I thought that was incredibly cool that not only did, um, and I thought Kurt Russell did a great job as Herb Brooks giving the speech, but the fact that Herb Brooks saved those note cards for all those years yeah. and then was able to share it with Kurt Russell. And he actually, you know, there's something about an actor, and I think holding a piece of history like that in his hands, and for a guy like Kurt Russell, who was a professional athlete, he was baseball as a baseball player. I think, you know, he understands what being an athlete is and what being in a coach's coach player situation is all about. So I, that's why I thought he did such a good job giving that speech. Yeah, yeah, and you know, it's I, I heard some of the players talk about the fact that. While he was super tough on them, you know, throughout this whole process, they said as it was getting closer to they were going to play the Soviets, he he didn't 
build the Soviets up, he started to tear them down. He started to say, you know, there was this one guy, this one Russian kind of looked like, was it Stan Laurel from like Laurel and Hardy? (laughs) And he was like, because he had this very prominent chin and nose and he mocked him. And he was like, he goes, he goes, you guys are really going to lose to Stan Laurel? He goes, and and so it's like, he, while I think he scheduled that initial, initial game was because he wanted to take the mystique away. And they said the whole rest of the tournament leading up to this game, he was just con- constantly putting the Russians down so that they didn't have them build up and that they didn't, they didn't, uh, you know, walk in there where they just were intimidated by them. Sure. So these guys, you know, from what the, the players are saying, you know, he, they were not, necess- maybe they was a little nervousness, but they weren't super intimidated. Yeah, I, I wish I could remember what the exact quote was, but and I think this was also in the Aruzioni interview where he said that, you know, Herb had told the team, we're not going to, we're not going to um, cut their throats. We're going to hand them the knife and they're going to do it to themselves, mm-hmm. which I thought, wow, you know, like what exactly does he mean by that? But as, as the game goes on and you start to see the panic, Mm-hmm. As we'll talk about this in the third period, it's exactly what happened. They all of a sudden you go from the most disciplined team in the world to a team that's put in a situation where they don't know what to do. Well, and that's it. They now have adversity. They've been the front runner. What what do they do? Well, you know where the U.S. team is used to fighting back because they they've been down before. Uh, you know, this is going to be uncharted water for them. They, you know, with with Brooks in his speech you know, just kind of paraphrase some of the things that he said where, you know, he he said, we play this team 10 times, we're going to lose nine, but not tonight. And we're going to, tonight, we're the best team in the world. Not tonight, boys. (laughs) Not tonight. Not tonight. And, you know, it's, Ruzioni tells the the story that, you know, as he walks out, they didn't put this in the movie, and and I won't say the whole whole thing, but he's like, he goes, if you lose to this team, you're going to remember this for the rest of your bleeping lives. And he, and he stops and he pauses and he goes, you're bleeping lives. And he and then he just walks out of the room. Yeah. And he just, but that's true. I mean, it's like, all right, you're, you're, you're 21 years old. This is going to go to the grave with you. Mm-hmm. So you, you better give it your all because you will think about this forever. So, you know, they, they come out in the second period. You know, the second mm-hmm. period starts and they come out in a uh, little bit, more than or a little bit less than halfway through the period, Soviets score again. They go up three to two. Yes. Even though the Soviets lead going into the third period, for the first time in a decade or so, this is the closest that any team has come to the Soviet hockey team going into the third period in Olympic history. You know, in the, in Olympic competition. So even though even though they were losing, you almost felt like it was a slight moral victory because you're within, you're within range going into period number three. So no, you know, second period is relatively quiet. You don't see a lot of action, but yet they're going into the final period and it's a one goal game. It is. And this is a game that, you know, the U S has no business being in according to the world. Now, now obviously according to Herb Brooks's master plan, they're exactly where he thought they could be. Right. And so they're hustling and, and the, the Soviets are starting to show some cracks there. You know, there there's, you know, there's some penalties They're They're playing a little loose. And 
All of a sudden, Mark Johnson, once again, Mark Johnson comes up and scores the goal to tie it. Yeah, Mark Johnson ended up having a pretty good NHL career. He did. As I'm sure you're probably going to talk about some of the guys here you know, at the end, some yeah. of the guys who ended up having NHL careers. But, yeah, Mark Johnson had a big game that night. He did. You know, and I don't know how many people remember Mark Johnson's name. I remember he was with the Capitals. Right? Uh, well, he, he he was with the Penguins initially. Okay. So after after the Olympics are over, he goes to to the Penguins. Yeah. But didn't he play? with I think Washington? he did. Yeah. I mean, yeah. He, he he was a you know he wasn't a one team guy. He, he was somebody that I, that I remember hearing a lot when they played the Flyers. Sure. He I mean he had an NHL career where he was he was a good solid and he was a good scorer. Yeah, he was. Oh, you know, always a valuable player. You know, any any guy that's going to play you know a decade plus in the in the NHL you know. That's there's there's certainly something to be said about that, but yeah, so you know he scores at their tie, third period and their tie, and the you know now you know as Al Michaels and, and we can talk a little bit about Al Michaels how this is the game that makes his career, but he goes if you go back to the original broadcast he kind of mentions that there wasn't a lot of I mean people were kind of fearing the worst so they're excited when it starts but you know then then when the game starts they're kind of quiet yes they're not quiet now no. No, and that eight thousand, I think eight thousand five hundred seat arena, whatever it was, is just rolling. Yeah, and uh, you know, it kind of started with tying the tying the game at the end of the first period. The second period, like we said, there's not a whole lot that's going on, so it get kind of quiet again. Yeah, but then the Mark Johnson goal to tie it, and the place explodes. So. All right, that's what was happening in the arena. What was happening at the high household when this? Oh, was we going were going on? nuts. It, it, was that when we started? Um, because we used to watch t- teams celebrate, like winning the pennant, like when the Phillies would win the division, <laughs> and they used to douse each other with champagne. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And we used to sh- because we didn't have champagne in the house, and we were little kids, so we took soda bottles yeah. and we shook them up. I I remember us <laughs> we doing. Didn't, we didn't do it. We we did it at the end of the game. Yeah, we, yeah. We, we doused it on the dog. But we were in our dog dutches. But we were jump. I remember. <laughs> I remember. We're, we're all going crazy. So. I heard Al Michaels talk about this, and he said, you know, there's certain momentous things that you can remember where you were. You know, he said, you know, when you're when you were from a previous generation, you knew where you were with Pearl Harbor. Mm-hmm. You knew where you were when, when John Kennedy was shot. You knew where you were when uh, the 9-11 happened. You knew where you were when this game took place. Mm-hmm. So we were... In our in our what we called our TV room, mm-hmm. you know, it it was all the whole family gathered in there. Uh, you know, all kind of you and I were not sitting. No, no, we weren't. But everybody was in there. All five of us. At the whole, all five in the family was in there, which is kind of unusual. Yeah, very on a, unusual. On a Friday night, mm-hmm. that we were all in front of the TV, actively engaged in this. And for for you and I, especially for me, I was. I remember being so excited because I knew I was going to be allowed to stay up and watch the end of it. And it started at eight, with it being a Friday night game. Yeah, uh, you know, because the odds. Oh, that's know, a good point. That's it, a good point. If it's if it's a school night, U.S. kids could stay up and watch this. Yeah, that that we were able to actually, you know, stay up late. Yeah, and watch the conclusion instead of having to go to bed and go to school. Because we went day. to bed at nine o'clock. Yes, and and so you're right to be able to stay up and, you know, to the credit of our, of our parents, when these these kind of life events happen in sports. They would let us stay up. Yeah, you know, when a few months later, when the Phillies win the World Series mm-hmm. on a school night, we're, we're awake. We're awake. Yeah. Yes, 
You know, we were allowed yeah. to stay up. You know, Dad took us uh, when when Pete Rose uh, the next year when he he ties to unusual. No, we were there when he broke. Oh, well, I, I was there. You were there. Right. I was there when he tied. I went with my friend Greg Lapp and his he, family. He hit that. He tied off of Nolan Ryan. He he broke the record off of Mark Littell. Mark with, Country Littell. With, That's right. Uh, so, but Louis. Dad took us to that we're game. We're at that game. We're and it. You know, let's go see it. Yeah. So, uh, and I'm thankful for that. Mm-hmm. So, and that's kind of where I think this was an event where a lot of families across this country were gathered together. And this this was, you know, we, we talk about what was happening in the previous episode, uh, part one about, you know, the gas crisis. And mm-hmm. we talk about the Iran Contra in, in our area, TMI was happening. Th- but this was something that, you know, the families, we could have a feel good moment together. And right now, we were nervous. I, I was. I mean, I can still almost feel like my heart beating from yes. how it was. As we're talking about this, you know, when I watch the highlights and when I watch the movie, I know the outcome. Yes. But I'm still getting excited and I'm still getting nervous. Yes. And for people that are watching the game on TV that don't know the outcome or you know, you're, you're viewing it or whether you're in the arena watching it, I think the Mark Johnson goal in the third period to tie it ratcheted up that glimmer of hope because I know there were a lot of people, you know, I would call them naysayers, but there were people in there being realistic. And let's face it, the realistic line was to think that the U.S. had no chance in this game. Sure, sure. I mean, you were you were happy to be there. Mm-hmm. I, and I, you obviously, you, if you're a little kid, you think we're going to win. Uh, Herb, you know, if, if you're an adult fan, it's probably, you know, Herb Brooks did a great job with this team. They were the youngest team in the tournament. They were the youngest team in United States hockey history to appear in the Olympics. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so many of these things. And they go in, they're undefeated. Oh, you know, uh, you know, it's a close game. Boy, they really, they really, they almost got there. You know, they they, they did such a good showing. But now all of a sudden, hey, we got almost a full period and, there's a chance they could win right, this game. Right, right, So they, Johnson scores. We're tied up at three. Game's going on. Americans, they are, they're playing out of their minds. I just remember so much action and speed. And, you know, every line came out there with energy. And, you know, the, of course, you remember the, you know, because they talk about it in the movie. But I remember it at the time, the Conehead line. Mm-hmm. You know, they, because, you know, the Coneheads are big in Saturday Night Live. Right. And, you know, the, the, the three guys that were the Coneheads. And that they, you know... Whenever that line would hit the ice, you know, uh, you know, Al Michaels was like, oh, the current headline's on the ice, and, you know, you, you get all jazzed up. And But as it's going on, with 10 minutes left in the game, kind of an unlikely hero emerges. Yeah, um, and it was the changeover of a shift. And one of the things that, that Herb did at, you know, in the third period was they went to short shifts of 40 seconds. Whereas a typical, you know, your average shift in a hockey game runs anywhere from a minute to a minute and a half at the most two. But usually 60 to 90 seconds is going to be your average shift for a hockey player. So what Herb wanted to do was to keep them fresh at this point. So they go from, from the normal shifts to 40 seconds. And they're coming in and out. And they're coming in and out. And it kind of added to the frenetic pace of the game. And I think at, at that point, you know, no longer are the, you know, the U.S. players saying, hey, we're hanging with these guys. 
I think at some point they realized they were outplaying them, mm-hmm. which they were at that point before Michael Ruzzino pops off the bench and finds himself along the boards and is wide open with a pass. And Iruzioni forever changes his life and changes the, the future of so many Americans and, and players on this team. He finds the back of the net. And uh, Iruzioni loves to tell the story, and he likes to repeat it, and he says he was three inches away from painting bridges for the rest of his life. You know, he, he Aruzioni, based on talent, would, would tell you he didn't deserve to be on this team. Yeah, and it's it's funny because I think the movie does a good job of setting that goal up when they're in practice. They're practicing as a mm-hmm. team, and he's kind of struggling a little bit. There's one particular scene where he's got a wide-open goal, and he pushes the pushes the shot wide, and Brooks is all over him. He's just chewing him out, saying – you know, you keep shooting like that and you're going to be off this team. You're going to, you know, I got six guys I need to cut, that right, kind of thing. Right, And so it's just kind of, I, I think, from a theatrical or directorial perspective, you know, there's, there's that sense of redemption that it's him that in that clutch moment is the guy that finds the back of the net. But doesn't Eruzioni sum up what a lot of us as Americans feel? That we are the underdog, mm-hmm. you know, we're, we're the scrappers, you know, it's, it's, yeah, there might be people with more talent, but we're going to work hard and we're not going to let adversity get us down. Right. And he was elected captain. You know, he was the captain of the team. Sure. It, you know, it takes more to being a captain of the team than just being the oldest guy. Right. Yeah. I just have to have, have extremely high character to be uh, on, on a team like that, where he kind of make, it was his last, it was his last shot. It was. And it, we we mentioned about the the rivalry between Minnesota and Boston, mm-hmm. where they didn't like each other, and Erosioni was the guy that bridged the gap. You know, he he was the captain. You know, he would have been the leader that at the University University of Boston team, and he was the guy that that you know he was on the team for his leadership, right? And he probably was on the team because he was one of those guys that was willing to take a beating from Brooks. Yeah. I don't know if it happened, but it, it is a great moment in the movie when the lights are out in the arena in Norway and they're mm-hmm. doing the sprints. Yeah, and he Curb kept asking the team, "What's your name? Where are you from? Who do you play for?" Right, and they kept saying, "You know who their name was." I play for the University. You know, I'm from Butts and Dutch in Minnesota. I play for the University of Minnesota, and he just keeps making them do these sprints in Norway, and finally. When everybody's at their breaking point, Aruzioni speaks up and he says, Mike Aruzioni, Brockton, Massachusetts. Who do you play for? I play for the United States of America. So the, the movie portrays him as the first guy to say that I no longer don't play for this these college rivals. Right. That he's playing for the country. And at one point, uh, Herb does say, and this is this is true, that one of the things that he used to say to his players all the time is, the name on the front is a lot more important than the name on the back. Yeah, they a bunch of the players um, <laughs> kept a notebook while while the whole seven months mm-hmm. ordeal was going on. They called them Brooksisms. Yeah. So they were, you know, they they definitely were, were were they found him funny because well, I mean, he was abusing them and he would just say these stupid things right. and they they say they have no idea what it <laughs> what it meant and it, you know. It, but you know that's that was him, and that's how you know they 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 learned to enjoy it. And 
you know, used it. So Rizzioni scores his goal. Ten minutes uh, left. Boy, do I remember that. Yeah. Boy, I mean, th- that is just like like emblazoned in my memory for the rest of my life. It is. and But if you want, you know, if you go back and watch the replay, it happens so quick. Yeah. A lot of times when you watch, like when the Russians are, or, you know, the Soviet Union is, is going into their attack, it seems like the puck stays in their offensive zone forever. Mm-hmm. But when... Mark Johnson scores his first goal. You almost like, it's like, what did I just say? When Aruzioni scores his goal to put him ahead, it's like the blink of an eye. Because they like, didn't set it up. If you put your head down, you missed it. The Russians are going pass to pass to pass to pass to shoot. Yes. And this is, oh, we just stole the puck from somebody and we get a quick shot on goal. It was this unbelievably aggressive mentality that the Soviets had never seen before because all the teams that they ever played in the last 15, 16, 17, 18 years are so overwhelmingly intimidated by them. I, I didn't see it go in at first. I saw Rizzioni celebrate. Yes. And that's, that's my memory. Well, TV technology had something to do with that as well because one thing I remember about watching hockey in the 80s was how hard it was to watch on television. Remember when they had that glow puck? For, yeah. for a brief, because it was so hard to follow because we didn't have HD television. Right. We, we, you know, it's the NHL experimented with having this this halo over the puck so that you could follow it watching it on TV. Right. Yeah, uh, but you're right. It, it was very difficult because one thing you got to credit ESPN with was, is a lot of camera uh, angles mm-hmm. and how close they can get to the action. You had basically a, a standard overhead shot. You didn't have anything up close. You know, there was no uh, goal cam or anything like that. So you kind of had the bird's eye view of watching Rizzioni take this shot. So, yeah, I can easily see why you would have a hard time seeing it go into the net. So we're up, right? The U.S. is up. We, we have this lead. There's 10 minutes left in the period, Scott. And it seems like this is going to take forever. Yeah. Uh, you know, as as a young fan, trying to trying to think back at what my thought thoughts were, I know I was so excited, but I also remember thinking to myself, man, there's a lot of time left. And, but I I don't know <clears throat> if I was holding on to the 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 hope that they were going to score. I mean, they scored seven against Czechoslovakia. Maybe I thought they're going to blow them out, but uh, I do remember thinking ten minutes is a long time. I just remember being nervous. I mean, it's it's this weird thing where I don't know how you are. Do you like the goosebumps? <laughs> do, you, do you like to have your stomach in knots when you watch sporting events? You know, there are times where ultimately, yes, that's why you're invested. That's yeah. why you're a fan. Um, there are times where I turn away, you know, currently. Mm-hmm. Just because I know how painful it is going to be. And I'm just going to throw this out. You know, the Phillies just lost a game a couple of nights ago, and I did not stay up for the conclusion of it. And I'm glad I didn't stay up for the conclusion of it. I stayed up for the conclusion, and I went to bed angry. That would have been so painful to, to actually have witnessed. But on the flip side, you know, previous season, the Phillies are in the NL playoffs, and Bryce Harper comes up, the team's down, in the eighth inning, you, know, you could have turned the TV off, but if you don't, then you miss a game-winning home run. Sure. 
So with with the pain comes the exhilaration. Yeah, I have this this weird relationship with it, and I think it's a lot of our listeners are, are going to agree with this. Where I almost need them. It's it's the adrenaline. It's it's what gets me excited before a game. I, I that's why I love live sporting events. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's great to watch them on TV. But this is where like Eric Hyden wanted to be in the building because it's like going to a rock concert. I mean, there's something about it where there's just this this buzz and also when you can unite with the people in the arena with you or the stadium with you. And, you know, I, I was able to, in 1993, I was at the, the game where the Phillies clenched against the Braves in the playoffs and to a veteran stadium where you have a sold-out veteran stadium and you're just kind of united with your fans. There's just something about that. So I, I like that. I don't like it too. You know, it's like no, it, you're it, right. it, it drives you crazy. But the moment I lose that, I won't care and I'll stop watching. Right. But this, you know, Scott and I, we, we come back to this time and time again. This is formative for both of us where I'm 11, mm-hmm. didn't necessarily grow up in a rabid sports family. Mm-hmm. I'm starting to get into it. This is one of the first events that propels me to what becomes a lifelong interest in sports where I kind of get hooked on this adrenaline rush that I get from this game. I think, you know, for for you and me, our relationship was built on moments like this, like this game. Sure. Because while our our parents would follow, you know, follow the Phillies or follow the other teams and and enjoy them you know, you and I took it to a whole other level. We were emotionally invested, and you know, we were we were the we were the guys that devoured uh, publications, mm-hmm. studying statistics, and watching highlights. And you, I mean, you you didn't just know your team. You like you didn't just know the Eagles. You knew the Eagles on the practice team. Sure, which still holds true to this day. Well, yeah, and. You know whether it's whether you follow a team, whether it's uh, you know the Flyers or the Sixers or the or the Eagles or the Phillies. You know we've always been it, it, we took it to the next level, and a lot of it had to do with the excitement from a, you know a game like this. Would we have gotten that rabid if they would have lost? If the United States would have lost? Good I don't question. Know. Good I don't question. Know. Because when we as, as we talk a lot about music here on this. Uh, uh, show that we have you know time and time again our heroes will say what got them into music was watching the beatles on Ed sullivan mm-hmm. and it was just this one momentous event and they just were like awestruck and like this is what i want to do this event that we're talking about here in this episode is that event for me yeah and i think at this point as a young viewer uh i'm starting to hear what exactly Al Michaels is saying mm-hmm. in the broadcast, and I'm it's starting to sink in just what's what we're witnessing, and I can't remember, at, but I know it was sometime after Aruzioni scores the goal to put them up four to three, but at some point between the ten and the zero, I'm starting to even as a little kid, I know I'm witnessing something special. Yeah, like this this is a big deal. And this is something I'm going to remember probably for the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. So 
and I think a lot of that had to do with 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 Al's broadcast. And, and not everybody's a fan of, of of Al Michaels, but I think as a national broadcaster, he's ex, he's excellent. Always has been very professional, and for a guy who doesn't normally follow hockey, did a great job in this tournament. I, I remember a lot of the moments from his voice in in ABC's coverage. And this is the moment that made him. So we, he, eventually, you know, so, you know, we'll, we'll break it to you. They win the game. <laughs> ten minutes. It seems like ten hours. And I remember there's a lot of gasping and yelling and jumping up and down and excitement and back and forth, at least in our household. Finally, finally, as the clock ticks down, Al Michaels, he utters what is arguably the most famous call in sports history. Yes. And he says, do you believe in miracles? And he talks about that now where he did not plan that. Which is what makes it really special. Which is what makes it special because he said, had I thought it through and I had that line, I guess I wouldn't have said it because it would have sounded kind of cheesy. Yeah, and it like, would have. Like it does now. It does now. Yeah. Yeah, right. But at the moment when that happened, it just seemed perfect. Yeah. Well, and another thing that was a part of the making of the movie Miracle is 99.9% of Al Michaels' voice for the Olympic tournament because his voice is in the movie. It's all redone. He went back and recut it. Okay. I didn't know that. Except the last 10 seconds of the Soviet game. Right. Okay. Where if, if you if you watch the movie, and I paid particular attention to this, if you if you listen to the move, you know, watch the movie and listen to his talking, all of a sudden it gets kind of grainy. At about ten seconds, I have to go back, and that's where you can tell where they switched from, you know, the movie audio to the real audio. Okay, so so pay attention to that. You can you can you can definitely hear it, but they said that they did that on purpose because it's like, how could he ever possibly recreate that kind of emotion, uh, you know, intentionally? And I'm sure you'll remember this because right before he says it, he's he's calling the play, and it's Moro. To silk, mm-hmm. and then it's. Do you believe in miracles? And Dave Silk says to this day that he thanks him because people don't believe he was on the team. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he's not one of the big names. He's sure. not. He's not Neil Broughton. Right. You know, he, he's 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 not Mark Johnson. He right. he didn't go on and have have the big NHL career. He wasn't Jim Craig who became super famous from that. He wasn't Mike Ruzioni. Right. But to this day. He's the last player that is mentioned during this game. And I guess he will, you know, when people question him, like, you know, they'll say, I'm Dave Silk. Here's, here's my ID. And he says it because, he, hey, you know, he says that's who, who I am. So, yeah. you know, just and, and as you talked about, you know, at home in our house, we go into the celebration where you and I get like the Pepsi out mm-hmm. and we start spritzing around because, hey, you know, that's what that's what <laughs> baseball players that's, did. That's how you celebrate. Yeah. You know, no champagne, but uh, there's there's Pepsi, and you did pour it on our dog Duchess yes. at one point. Yeah, because uh, you know it. As you know, folks, when you when you're in the they're in the locker room, they always dump dump on somebody else on somebody's head. That's right. <laughs> so so poor Duchess got soda dumped on her head. Yeah, and we got stains on our green carpet. Uh, um, yeah, we were. I mean, we were coming out of the '70s, so yeah, yeah the, we were decorated appropriately. And I'm sure that's probably true for a lot of people listening. You yeah. know, where you. 
probably because of, of being Gen Xers, you know, we're we're all kind of a similar age. So we probably most of us watched this mm-hmm. between the ages of ten and twelve. 13, 14, I mean, in that range, that's where, you know, six years old, I mean, maybe you saw, you know, those of you listening, maybe you saw it when you were six or so, but that's where most of us were. You know, I guess, I guess my question from that is, was such a monumental moment for Americans, you know, we, we have listeners from all around the world. And I guess my question to you, you Gen Xers from around the world is, what do you remember about the 1980 Olympic hockey team, or does it even register on your radar? And that's exactly the phrase I was going to say. Does it even register? Yeah. Are you like, why Why are these two brothers going on and on about this hockey team? But the fact is, it's not just us. You know, the they it you know we mentioned that this is considered the greatest sports moment in the 20th century, mm-hmm. and that's that's around the world. Yeah, you know, it's not just you know Jesse Owens had a pretty big moment. In the Olympics, uh, but that's not the greatest moment. This is the greatest moment. But so the U.S. wins this game, this great moment, this emotional high. This who could have believed that we could have beaten the Russians? But there's another game. They still have to play another game. They, and, and they two was it two days later? Two days later on Sunday. So this is Friday. Friday night. It's an incredible celebration. Oh, and I give you an Eric Hyden story with us as well. So Hyden's inside the arena. He because he wants to be a part of it. Mm-hmm. He's, he has a metal race the next day. He goes to his room. He oversleeps <laughs> because he got in late. Yeah. And so he's sleeping. His coach came to the door and is banging on the door, gets him there just in time, and he wins the gold medal. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think, what, he won five gold medals, but then he set like four world records. Uh, something like that, yeah. And that was back when speed skating was still done outside. And, and for him, you know, he, you know, there's possibility that had he he messed up that, you know, he could have regretted that forever. But sure. now he gets to have it all. He gets to have the five medals, the world records, and he was there for, the, for that moment. Yeah, what a moment. And I know for, I guess, and Sean had mentioned that and kind of built up to this game, all the, all the angst, all the frustration – for people that were living in the United States and, and some spotlighting some of the things that were going on right at that moment when the Olympics started. And just this unbelievable, and even the United States hockey team, which Herb was not known as a guy who was very aware of anything going on around him besides hockey, but even he couldn't fend off the talk that was going on around the Olympic Village with regards to what was going on in Iran and with the Soviets invading Afghanistan and that Carter was threatening to pull the summer Olympic team from, from the Moscow Olympics. Sure. So, I mean, he could not avoid it. So at some point the team had to kind of embrace some of that, um, which they finally did towards the end. And I think, you know, everybody looks back and, and are glad that they did. So they, they go on, and they, on Sunday they're going to play Finland. And, of course, what does the U.S. team do? They go down. They, they fall behind. They fall behind. So it's two to one. And I looked at my notes, and, and I misspoke. So the, the speech that Brooks gets about taking it to your grave. Take it to your bleeping is, grave. Is, yeah. this, is this game. Yeah. You know, so they're down when they, when they go in. They're down two to one. And he goes in and, you know, says, you're going to take this to your grave. And, and it's true that it, it's hard 
you know, sometimes to, to go from emotional highs and then still yes. take care of business. Yes. And you see it happen all the time. All the time. How many times do you see a, a team just win a, a gut-wrenching series and then go on and get swept or, or just fall behind because there was that much pain yeah. coming out of the previous series? Uh, you know, their whole, I guess their whole DNA for the United States hockey team was to go out and beat the Soviets. It which, was. Which they did. That was that was everything. That was the goal. And yet, the funny thing about how the Olympic tournament ran at that time is they still had a potential, if they would have lost to Finland, they might not have even contended for a medal. The way that the tournament was set up is they could have finished as low as fourth because they were in the top, they were in the final four. But I guess it had to do with goal differential. If Finland would have blown them out, they not, would not even have meddled. That would have been insane. So they they, they ended up. That would have been crazy. Yeah. But they do come back. They do win four to two. And um, I, I remember being like really upset when they were down. So yes. we're, we're watching that game. We, once again, we're in the same TV room that yes. we had. And it's a Sunday afternoon. And yes. we're, we're watching this. And I was I was devastated. When they were down two to one, I, I was I was thinking, how, how are you going to blow this? And this was. To me, just because I was probably younger, I didn't quite, you know, like the Russians, I hadn't built it up quite as much as what other people did. It's like, I won the gold medal. That's all yeah. I was about. Yeah. And so they end up going out and they and they won. They did win. I think, the you know, before, I want to mention one thing. Uh, and I have to credit Herb Brooks for not taking his eye off the prize. Because after they beat the Soviets, and it's just... Just complete uh, exuberance out on the ice, and fans are waving flags, and the players are jumping around and hugging each other. Herb Brooks is not to be found because he very quietly and privately snuck out of the uh, the arena, the mm-hmm. inside, and went back into his office and cried. Sure, because his whole uh, you know when he started out as the coach of the United States team, this was it. But again, credit the guy for saying, all right, we're not done yet. And I guess we didn't mention it. And I guess I assume people always know the story that Herb Brooks was the last guy cut from the 1960 hockey team, but probably some of our listeners don't know that. So this was, this, it should be mentioned. This, this whole mission was incredibly personal for Herb Brooks because mm-hmm. he was on the 1960 Olympic gold medal U.S. team, the last team that won the gold medal that wasn't the Soviet Union. And I think he was also the oldest hockey player ever to rep- represent the United States in the Olympics. I did not know that. I think he ended up staying on yeah, he came back through in, in, the 68. Yeah, so he, he did play later on. Yeah. And this just ate him up. You know, he was the last guy cut. And so this was personal for him. This mm-hmm. And you know, he, he tells the story of what his father said to him. So in 1960, Herb Brooks is the last guy cut from the team. They, he's at home. He's watching the game with his dad. The U.S. wins the gold. His dad looks at him and says, well, I guess they cut the right guy. Kind of heartless, but yeah. that's what his dad said. And that stayed with him. Yeah. And he it, it just like ate at him and ate at him. So here he finally gets kind of the, the culmination of of this this quest that he's been on 
and he still has to win this other game. And he's, but he's, he's, his eyes on the prize. Yes, it's the service, but it is the gold medal. Yeah. So he inspires them. They do win. Not quite as dramatic as the as the survey game to me. Which the the biggest takeaway from when they win the gold medal is the the ceremony afterwards. Yes, um, because the U.S. plays first. You know, the U.S. Finland game is first, and then the Soviets play. So the Soviets play. I think it was Sweden, and they end up. Uh, you know, the Soviets win. Mm-hmm. So when. Mike Ruzioni comes out when they do the medal presentation. Mm-hmm. The Soviet players and the Swedish players are on the ice. Right. Ruzioni comes out alone and stands on the podium because by results of the game and the fact that the United States won, they clinched the gold medal. Mm-hmm. So he's up there by himself, which which stood out to me because when you actually go back and look at it, is he's the only one that's not in pads and skates. He's wearing sweats. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So kind I, of a very late 70s sweatsuit. Yeah, you know. Hey. It was, he could have gone to Studio 54 with that. <laughs> but I just, that, that as, a young, as a young kid, that stood out to me. Well, so he's standing out there, you know, so you have the captains from each of the three gold medal winning teams. You know, the, the U.S. National Anthem is played. When it's over, Aruzioni, he's there by himself. He calls for his teammates to come out. And all the guys, every, all 20, Go running out to the podium, sprinting. Yeah, on the ice, they're all they're all in the same sweatsuits. Yeah, they all you know same sneakers on, and they somehow all fit at the top of the podium, perfectly fit. Yeah. I mean, it's amazing, and it and was such a cool moment. It was, and to me, that's as much a memory as the game against Finland. It's more of a memory, you know, because I, I remember in our house, like you know, I think mom was like, "Oh, isn't that great that they're together?" and it was, and I think that that was the key to this whole thing. They were a team. Yeah. And that's, I think, what kind of won everybody here because they were a family, as they talk about in mm-hmm. the movie Miracle. This could not have been done individually. They did it together. Yeah, you would not have been able to put a team together of college all-stars and been able to get that same result. You're not going to play a bunch of 30-year-olds at the at the peak of their game and, and win. Which is, and I think... Uh, Herb even said after the Olympics, the Olympic Committee decided to allow professionals into the Olympic sports and they started using NHL players. Mm-hmm. Herb was very critical of that. And he said, you're never going to get the same results and it's just all-star games. You'll you'll never get that kind of production from an Olympic team again if you use pros all the time. And you're also not going to get the buy-in from the fans. Personally, it's never... It's never had the same feeling yeah. for me as it did back then. So, all right, let's talk a little bit about the aftermath of of this team in pop culture. Okay. So that winter, December 1980, Christmas 1980, I get my first subscription to Sports Illustrated. I remember that. As a Christmas gift. And what they would do, for those of you, and listeners, if you've done this, you remember this, they would send out as the first issue for new subscribers, Sportsman of the Year. Mm-hmm. Well, the Sportsman of the Year uh, was the U.S. Olympic hockey team. The yes. first time ever in the history of the magazine, the Athlete of the Year was a team. Yeah. And when they showed the cover of SI immediately after the United States wins the gold medal, 
I think it's the first time that they ever ran a cover that had no captions on it. Mm-hmm. It was just a picture of them celebrating on the ice yeah. after they beat the, the Soviet Union. Right. So, the, you know, the fact that it's, it's you know, they are now a part of, of American lore. Mm-hmm. And this this team, it they haven't really gone away as far as how people feel about them. That can remember. Mm-hmm. They, I, I heard that, I guess, um, when they had the 40th anniversary, right around there, because I know COVID was around that time, so they couldn't have a lot of things. But they got together in Las Vegas for a Golden Knights game. Mm-hmm. And they said that, you know, the players that were playing weren't born, a lot of them. Right. And that you had, I guess probably none of them were, would have been born at that time. And, you know, and the fans are, you know, just cheering and going crazy. And all the players wanted to have their pictures taken and be close to them and, and touch them. It's still something that that they're remembered for. Absolutely. Yeah. I think, I think it's appropriately listed as the greatest sports moment in the 20th century. It's certainly... It is for for me. I think it is for us, our family, what we viewed together. You and myself is probably the greatest moment. I, I can't think of anything that would have that would have topped it. And you and I have watched thousands, thousands. tens of thousands of games yeah. in our lifetime. Yeah, there's nothing that really comes close to it. At least not at a national level. Right. Right, sure, locally. I mean, so later that year, you know, uh, you know, I mentioned that the Phillies win, win their first World Series, and we went crazy with that. And mm-hmm. I, I don't know about you, Scott, but I thought sports was easy. I thought, it was. You know, all, all our teams uh, were, were in the championships. And- keep, it, keep in mind, 1980, our own personal baseball teams. Yeah, yeah, our Little League. Won our yeah. championships. That's right, we did, yeah. Your team won because yeah. you were ahead of me. Yeah. Your team won the championship, and my team won the championship. Sports is easy. What, what are people talking it about? It was like this, hey, man, this. why Why is that angry? Why is that guy <laughs> yelling in the seat next to us at the Phillies game? So the Philadelphia fans, as we found out later on, are, are miserable most of the time. And I didn't get it. I remember, I remember this year specifically, like Scott said, there would be these miserable old guys just screaming and just, and just saying that, that they, they knew they were going to lose, that, that I knew they'd blow it, they're going to blow it. And I'm like, what's wrong with this guy? We don't lose. Yeah. Well, he was obviously going through 1964. Sure. Um, and any, any fan that has been you know, a sports fan followed the same team for any number of years no matter what city you're in, if you're if you re- truly follow that team, you will have incredible ups and downs. Well, and and so also you, we mentioned that you and I got into hockey because of this, and I remember starting to watch the Flyers. Yes, and I, I'm not. I'd had to look it up, but I, I either saw Ken Morrow's first game or one of his first games. Okay, uh, when because the Islanders played the Flyers. Okay, so I knew who Kenny Morrow was. Sure, you know. It is kind of amazing that in the movie, like Miracle, he doesn't really get much mention. No. Uh, actually, there's probably some of the more successful ones. Like you mentioned Neil Broughton. Sure. He was, he was the best. I mean, he's the most successful yeah, bunch. But he's he's like an afterthought in the movie. Yeah. I mean, Neil, Neil Broughton is, I think he had like a 17-year career. He, Mike, he and Mike Ramsey both had like 17, 18-year careers. Yeah, they both played well over 1,000 games. It, exactly. And I, I, I heard that Neil Broughton was not too long ago voted the number one 
Minnesota hockey player or not, if not athlete in history. Yeah, and I and I think I can't think of anybody to overtake that because right. Neil Brown was a great hockey great, player in the eighties. Great player, great player in the eighties. So they had great players. Yes, but they were young. Yeah, you know, there's there's a difference between Neil Broughton at twenty one than what he was at twenty eight. Sure, you know that that player was was one of the best in the world. Yeah, and I I would agree with you. I think for us. I knew who Pelly Lindbergh was for the Flyers mm-hmm. before he actually started starting for the Flyers. And then when he, he had went on to this unbelievable success, won the Vesna trophy, mm-hmm. you know, tragically dies, but gave us, you know, a couple of couple of seasons of greatness that but you're right. I didn't know I think probably the only hockey player I would have known as at that particular age might have been Bobby Clark. Sure. I remember watching, getting really excited when the Flyers p- played the Atlanta Flames, because Jim Craig, because Jim Craig was in goal. Sure, and that it did. So that was kind of what I liked. One of the things I liked about this was a lot of these guys, a lot of these players, had NHL careers. So it was a way for me because I knew them. Mm-hmm. So now when I started watching the Flyers, I would see some of these. We talked about Mark Johnson. I'd see him play for the Penguins. Yeah. You know, I see him brought in play for the the North Stars. Yeah, and it was exciting. That was back in a day when we would get excited to watch players from other teams mm-hmm. play our team. Yeah. Uh, not Larry Bird because we hated Larry Bird. <laughs> but when you had a player like a Michael Jordan would come in to Philadelphia and to watch him light the Sixers up, but the Sixers would still find a way to win. Sure. So that made it a great night. You, you yeah, got to, sure. You got to watch greatness. But yet your team still won. But just having players come from that team that you could follow in the NHL really opened up a whole new sport to, I think, me specifically, but probably both of us. Sure. So, it, and, you know, that, that was definitely something that, that carried over for a while. And, um, I, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners were the same way, that, mm-hmm. that they became hockey fans because of that. Sure. Okay. So let's transition over. And you and I play a lot of music on this show don't we scott yes we do and i love that we play a lot of music and i don't want to have us leave without playing some music okay so what i decided to do was take us back in time i'm going to take us back to billboard's top 10 from the week of february 23rd 1980 okay all right so i'm gonna i'm gonna play some of these songs for you let's see if you know who they are. I, I think most of them are pretty pretty well known. So okay. we're gonna come in at number ten number that 10. week. You'll know it as soon as the singer starts singing. As soon as you hear the drums, you'll know it. Wait a minute, oh, okay. This is of course Fleetwood Mac with Sarah. Yes. Stevie Nicks. Stevie Nicks. And give it a second or so, so you're going to hear Mick Fleetwood kind of kick in with his his very uh, signature sound. But this is what would have been happening that week. Okay. And I just I knew this song from the radio. There we go. There's Mick. There he goes. Yeah. Okay. So that's number ten, and that's Fleetwood uh, Fleetwood Mac with Sarah. Now, our next song, and I kind of show you, we're, we're, we're in the 80s now, mm-hmm. right? So the 80s, 
as we've mentioned many times, that there's so much diversity in music yes. in the charts, and there's a lot of crossovers for the first time. So here's a crossover artist that uh, we're going to totally change genres. Is this Kenny Rogers? It is Kenny Rogers. Coward of the County? Coward of the County. Everyone considered him the coward of the county. <laughs> Just love Becky. Yeah, you got pushed a little too far. That's right. His mama named him Tommy. The folks just called him yellow. That's kind of mean. Just calling him yellow. Yellow. Called him yellow. Hmm. So this was the number nine song okay. in the country at the time. I I, I bet the players on the, that U.S. hockey team had this playing <laughs> on the boombox and. There in the uh, in the locker room, the boys from Boston and Minnesota. Yeah, so here's a, a song that I mean, I I kind of remember, but certainly wasn't one of my my favorites. It's Andy Gibb. It is Andy Gibb. Okay. Uh, yeah, it's not it's not the spirits. That's the Bee Gees. I mean, it's it's one that I don't think is played a lot anymore, but it was popular. Obviously, yeah. this is the number eight song in the country. Sure. Yeah, I can't remember the it's, title. The song is called Desire. Desire, okay. Yeah. yeah. But it definitely had that BG sound. Oh yeah, yeah, no doubt. And, and it's actually, you know, you know, I think Barry and Maurice are on this one as well. Robin's okay. probably part of this. I think they're doing the backups. Sure. This know. is when they started to transition into producing. Yeah, and they're trying to promote Andy. Yeah. You know, right? Was he on Solid Gold at this time? I don't know if he was on yet because he still had the had singing, the singing career. career. Yeah. Yeah. So that is Andy Gibb with Desire. Now here's a song. Num- the uh, the next song that we're going to play here is a song. Uh, uh, Scott played this artist in our last episode. Not the song, but this artist made Scott's famous mixtape. Donna Summer. Yeah. Up the song. Um, Without looking yes. at my screen? No, I'm not looking <laughs> at your screen. She just said it. Yeah, yeah, on the radio. But I remember this song a lot. Sure, this was yeah. a big. This was a big hit. Yeah. So let's see. That was ten, nine, eight, seven. That was the number seven song. Should we let her get? Yeah, get sure. You here? want to? Yeah. Okay. All right. Did you watch that Down Summer documentary that's uh, like on Netflix or HBO? One of those? Showtime, no, one of those? No, I didn't. It's pretty good. Is it? Yeah. And this was, you know, she's still super popular coming out of sure. the disco era. Yeah. And, you know, she you know, is kind of transitioning now into the 80s. She was trying to change her sound. Yeah. She was known as the queen of disco. And, and this, so this song, as you know, Scott wants it to kick in a little bit. Still has kind of a disco sound. Sure, it's hundred percent. Yeah, or something at the roller skating rink. I'm sure we roller skated to this quite a bit. Okay, so that's Donna Summer, uh, the number seven song with "On the Radio." The number six song. We're gonna go completely different. We're gonna slow it down. This is a couples only. Couples only. Dan Fogelberg? Correct. Longer? Correct. Okay. Good job, Scott. 
Uh, who doesn't remember a good Dan Fogelberg song? I can honestly say in February of 1980, I did not like this. I hated Dan Fogelberg. <laughs> I can appreciate it But now. you know what? I have his, I actually have his greatest hits download, and I find myself listening to I it. Would have, I would have screamed to change the radio station yes. if this came on. Yes. But like I said, I, I like it now. So, you know, the late Dan Fogelberg put out some good music, yeah. but it did not speak to me at age 11. The, the leader of the band is is pretty good song. It is, but yeah. I, I didn't... Didn't like not it at, at the time when I was when it came out. Nope, not at all. So this Dan Fogelberg. So now we're gonna we're gonna break into the top five. Okay. And I'll let's keep see. My, my head down. All right, my, our our top five has has some pretty good songs, and you will know. I think most of these, all these songs. Okay. So number five, one of the all time greats. Oh, that's Michael Jackson. Oh yeah, rock with you. Yeah. So that's why, you know, when you hear this song. We were not caught off guard by Thriller, because yeah. Michael Jackson was a major artist before the Thriller album came out. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Off the Wall was mm-hmm. was a extremely popular. I love this. This this. While I hated Dan Fogelberg and would not listen to a second of it, I would listen to this all the time. Yeah, and Michael was about what twenty three, maybe twenty four, mm, maybe twenty two. He, he was young around there. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's a more mature sound than, than what he had before with the Jackson Vibe. Yeah. You can kind of see him growing up. Now, Thriller, actually, the voice goes a little higher. Mm-hmm. Uh, this off the wall is pretty tough to beat. Boy, this is good. It's a great song. This, this just is, holds up well. Yeah, it does. I mean, I don't, I'm, I don't mind Andy Gibbs' desire. But that doesn't hold up nearly like this does. Oh no, no, you could. This could hold up in many eras. They could release, you know, Michael Jackson could release this today, and I would think that's like one of the best songs I've ever heard. They are actually a, a duet that was done after his death that Justin Timberlake, he, Michael Jackson was working on a song, and so it kind of goes in as a duet. Very sounds very similar to this okay. this particular song. All right, so now we're gonna go to number four. Number four. four. This one I think you'll get eventually. See how long it takes you. Sounds like cruising. You're correct. Good job. I thought I thought you might might take you a bit. Uh, who sings them? I thought you get the artist before you get the songs. That's Smokey. Smokey Robinson. Okay. The great Smokey Robinson. 1980? 1980. Oh, wow. I, th- I would have thought that song would have come out 15 years before. Nope. Nope. Wow. 1980. Okay. Smooth Smokey Robinson. See, now that... You got me on that because I had no idea that song came out that late. Huh? Just like um, I had no idea that the song New York, New York by Frank Sinatra came out around this time okay i you know you hear frank sinatra you figure the song came out in the 50s yeah but no it was actually on a broadway show that came out in like 1980 well this certainly sounds like what smokey was oh, putting out great. in the 60s i love this song yeah huey lewis and gwyneth paltrow do an outstanding duet version they do of yeah, yeah they do I, I, you're right about that so you know as i say the great smokey robinson he's uh, having a bit of a comeback and and it will continue for a couple years in the 80s we're going to go to number three. 
All right, this is this is my personal favorite on the list. Okay. Just because it has good oh, memories. Casey. <laughs> Casey. And what, who's the lady that sang with this? This is Terry Desario. Oh, yeah. I would not have gotten yeah. that. Are you ready? <laughs> but you got to admit, this is the sort of thing a little kid would listen to. You know? At like, yeah. at like 10, 11 years old or so. I mean, it's, it's kind of romantic, but it's kind of bubblegum pop. Yeah. Yeah, it's harmless. You know, it's, it's not offensive. And I like KC. I mean, I was, we were, I was all about we Casey and the Sunshine about Band. Casey and the Sunshine Band. You're right. I don't know. Kind of one of those guilty pleasure type songs. <laughs> yeah, long term, today, I'm listening to Cruising. Oh, yeah. But when I was a little kid, you know, I, I would have liked this one. Oh, yeah. Okay, so that is the number three song, I'm Ready by Terry Desario on KC. Number two, you will know this one immediately. Captain and Tennille. Correct. I think they won the Grammy for this. Do that to me one more time. You are correct. Do that to me one more time. Did you think uh, Jim Craig was singing this to Mike Ruzioni <laughs> in the... Uh, in the locker room? I certainly hope not. <laughs> <laughs> that would be kind of funny. You know, that's the stuff we do in the locker room. We'd sing stupid songs like oh, this. And, yeah, that's true. Yeah. Don't think we would have sang Captain and Teal, but she talked about this. They kind of gave up on the two of them as a as a recording duo. Yeah. And they came back with the song and won the Grammy for Song of the Year. Because when we talked about our variety shows... That was, what, five, six years earlier than yeah. this? Yeah, it was like 76. Yeah, so they, um, this, you know, this is kind of a comeback for them. Yeah. All right, so that's the number two song. And then, so finally, the number one song is is a very well-known song. Okay. Crazy little thing called love. That's right. Yeah, this, this album was big in this area. That would be Queen's The Game. Mark my words. In a year, nobody will remember the band Queen. That's my Mike Myers terrible Scottish impression. Yeah, Mike Myers. Was he a record executive in the movie? was, yeah. yeah. Yeah, he was the guy who backed the financial side of recording. And, of course, they did play this song at Live Aid. They did. And we got to see Freddie Mercury play the guitar. We did. Yeah. And I remember watching Live Aid and kind of being surprised that Freddie was playing the guitar. I had no idea he could play yeah. another instrument besides the piano. I mean, all he was doing was drumming like the same chord right. all the time. But, you know, still, he was playing. Yeah, not bad. Yeah, so that is that closes out the top 10, uh, what did I say, February 23rd, 1980, when the men's hockey team wins the gold medal. Well, that's awesome. I, you know, it really does kind of set the set the climate for for where we were because we were crawling out of the 70s right and what a great way i remember john lennon being interviewed and he was talking about the 80s and he said i'm so optimistic for the 80s because he's like the 70s were kind of a drag man and he's like i'm you know i'm a little bit older and and i'm i'm looking forward to a new decade and i think Flipping that page really helped, 
Americans, and I'm sure you know other people around the world probably looked at it. Gen Xers looked at it as the dawning of a new era. Actually, that that Lenin quote you said there is pretty awesome. Yeah, I mean, that, I think I think you are right. I mean, that's you. We're, we're, we spent a lot of time in episode uh, the first part of this episode, kind of talking about you know as Jimmy Carter once called it the malaise mm-hmm. that was happening in the country, and there was this optimism. Now. Was it because the Olympic, the hockey team? I think that had a lot to do with uh, it, it. It may. It's suddenly things change. We, in that, ep, uh, you know, part one, we talked about the hostages. Well, the hostages get released in the, like the day Ronald Reagan is inaugurated in 1981. That night. Yeah. And so we're riding the tidal wave. And that tidal wave continues through the entire decade. And... You know, Scott will talk about that. I, I love like a certain certain era. Like my movies all tend to be like 1985, 1984, 1986. And there's just this feeling that there's, there's this this enthusiasm that was just going on and happening at the time. And it just you just felt good. You did. And again, I my my question would be to those of our listeners who don't reside in the United States. How was that time for your country? Because somebody being eight years old, I'm not globally aware sure. of what was going on in other countries at the time. So I can, you know, for for that time, rolling the, the calendar from 1979 to 1980, you know, how were things in your country at, at that particular moment? Because we have listeners from all over the world, cause, you know, Middle East, mm-hmm. Europe, a- Africa, South Africa, we have listeners in South, but... How was it, you know, for you Gen Xers in the different cultures and the different countries of the world? Uh, right. I just, I just something I I wonder about now. Yeah, and and would we have had that sense of optimism without this incredible moment that happened that that we all got to experience? I I think for us it kind of bridged <clears throat> it bridged the gap because I think at that point a majority of people had checked out on President Carter. Yeah, they had and. Because they remember, U.S. wins the gold medal in the in the hockey, but then they still boycott the Summer Olympics. Correct. They're still Carter is still the president. The hostages are still in mm-hmm. Iran. So it was this glimmer of optimism, but things kind of went back to normal for a little bit, and then it wasn't until the following year, right in January, when. Reagan gets inaugurated, and then that night, right. the hostages get get released, and um, you know then things start to slowly, kind of kind of work their way through. And you know, nineteen eighty one wasn't a whole lot lot better, but you kind of felt like things you were felt going like things had turned a corner. You felt like things were going in the right direction, right? So that's our little retrospective that we've had here on the Miracle on Ice. I know there's a lot of other people that have had their They've chimed in, um, but that's kind of our take on it. And, and I, you know, hopefully that you as listeners are able to kind of like think back for yourselves what what this meant to you. Where were you? You know, when it happened? Why was it so important? Do you agree with us? You know that you know why we think that this has stood the test of time and st- is still so important. I think it's important for us, even though you and I are huge sports fans now. I don't know if we would have classified ourselves as huge sports fans back then. No. And especially hockey. Oh, no. 
No, I didn't know much about hockey. So we can put ourselves into the category of when we watch this of getting swept up in this mania without really being a fan of the sport until the moment happened. I went from not understanding what icing meant to like within two weeks, I'm like this little expert walking around. (laughs) I, you know, it's, you know, we... We had that library at school. Mm-hmm. Like I know every school has a library, so, but we had a library, and they had a little. They had a section with little books, yeah. And they they had like for kids. So at that age, I went and I started checking out hockey books. And I remember I got uh, a book on Bobby Clark, mm-hmm. and I got I a book that. on Bobby Orr, and I got the book on Maurice the Rocket Richard. I remember that. And you know, and so I'm suddenly becoming this 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 hockey expert, and like literally, I. Did this probably this game? The medal game is probably the, the twenty is the twenty fourth. I think Monday I went to the library and checked out some books. Okay, yeah, awesome look back on on the United States men's Olympic hockey team for nineteen eighty. It was something that I really feel like for us as I guess I wouldn't call us historians of Gen X culture, but it shows like ours that we want to try and preserve certain moments, right. certain athletes, certain songwriters, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. And I think it was really important for us to talk about this particular moment because it was such a big deal for for a country, and we hope for other listeners that it was a worldwide event that people followed. Right. So now we're going to turn over to, to our next episode, Scott. And so what do you have in store for us? Well, I thought, you know, I was trying to figure out what we can do that be a little bit more creative on, we we like to really do a lot of stuff on music. And I thought, okay, you know, we'll jump back into it again. But I thought we'll take a little bit of a, a little bit of a twist on what we're going to do. And you kind of touched on it uh, in, in one of the previous episodes. I think what I would like to do is our episode is going to be, you may know this song, but do you know dot 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 and the reason that i say dot 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 is because i like the fact that you and i kind of look at things from a slightly different perspective we may like the same music Mm -hmm. but you probably like maybe a different part of the song sure like you're always you've always been big into guitarists right you've always loved guitarists like and i'll use an example you may know the song um you know, David Bowie, Let's Dance. Mm-hmm. But did you know that the guitar solo was done by Stevie Ray Vaughan? And right. maybe kind of go into okay. an explanation. Okay. So it doesn't necessarily have to be the musician. It could be a songwriter. It could be a famous artist that wrote a song for somebody else. I thought maybe what we can do is because our family, we always, we love to tell stories. We're just, it's just what we do. That's what we're doing here. And... I thought maybe if we can get like this little collection of stories about maybe specific songs or maybe an album, uh, it could be, you know, your choice, chef's choice, and and maybe just focus on eh, maybe half a dozen or, or 10 different things that you want to cover. It could be more than that. Okay. And so we'll, we'll just come back and we'll compare our notes. I mean, I know I, I really love looking at seeing who produced albums. Yeah, same. So you can look and see who produced albums, or I like to go down and see who wrote the particular songs. Mm-hmm. And there's usually some kind of a common thread with a lot of albums because successful artists, uh, 
not all successful artists write their own music. Right, exactly. So I, I thought maybe maybe we just kind of maybe share uh, something for the listener that they, they're a fan of music, but maybe they didn't know something about that okay. particular show. So tune in and maybe you'll learn something. So that's good. All right. So again, thanks to Sean for coming up with our tribute to the 1980 United States men's Olympic hockey team. And thanks again to those of you that are tuning in week after week to the Gen X Playback Show. Couldn't be here without you. We really appreciate it. And we can't wait to talk to you next time. Yeah, super exciting. So thanks for joining us, folks. And it's 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 always so much fun uh, just hanging out and kind of you know, Scott says, doing what we do. We just tell stories. All right. So we'll talk to you next time as we go behind the scenes of maybe some of the music that you know and love from the Gen X era. Thanks for listening to the Gen X Playback Show. We are the largest podcast in Nashville, Pennsylvania. We'll check the we'll check the standings, but I'm sure we're still oh, there, number th- one. There's no doubt. And we'll try not to get mobbed at the Turkey Hill down the street later on tonight. So, again, we thank you. We are the Brothers High. I'm Scott. And I'm Sean. And we'll talk to you later. See ya.